And now hear God's holy word from Ephesians chapter 2, picking up where we left off a couple of weeks ago, continuing our study in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the uncircumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at the time, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one, whole, one body through the cross, thereby putting, death, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word, and we praise you for the way your servant Paul revealed these mysteries to us through this letter uh, to the Ephesian Christians. May we absorb these things. May we take them into us and allow them to uh, marinate in us that we would continue chewing over and over them and, and continue to make application through every part of our lives. Do this by your Holy Spirit we pray. Help me to articulate these things clearly. Deliver us from all error. Deliver us from all distraction, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. They still have a wall in their heads. That's a popular saying in Germany. That's what East Germans and West Germans or former East Germans and West Germans still say each, about each other. Now, 29 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, 29 years after the collapse of the Soviet bloc, there are still separations in, in German culture between those who grew up under the East German government and those who grew up in West Germany. You know, from 1961 to 1989, a wall divided communist East Berlin and free West Berlin. I remember the first time I stood in a history class in our, our little school in Louisiana and I told the kids, well, you all remember when the Berlin Wall came down, right? And of course, none of them even knew what I was talking about. But for those of us who grew up under, in the Cold War, that was a, that was a major symbol of the division between East and West. Um, it, West Berlin itself was this weird political anomaly. West Berlin was this free island surrounded on every side by communist East Germany. And when the Allies divided up the spoils after World War II, Berlin, the city of Berlin, was divided in two. And by 1961, the paranoid, tyrannical Soviet government uh, built a wall right along the border to keep people from casually immigrating to the West from the East. And when the wall went up, you can, you can find story after story of how 
families, neighbors, friends were tragically divided. Even mothers were divided from their young children. If they had a child, had a baby, had a baby at, a, at a, a hospital over on the west side of the city and the baby had complications, there are these stories, these mothers were cut off from their children when the wall went up in Berlin. It's, in, in, in some respects, that seems like that was so long ago. In other respects, it's, it's very recent. And it's also remarkable to think that the Berlin Wall has now been down longer than it was up. It, it's been down now since uh, uh, 1989. And, and I think we've just crossed that mark. Uh, so it's just been uh, 29 years. Yet today, Germans who grew up under this arrangement still have prejudices and strong opinions about those who grew up on the other side of the wall from them. Eastern Germans say that Western Germans are arrogant, they're materialistic, they're more bureaucratic, they're superficial, they're, they're um, just you know, too, too American. West Germans think East Germans are sour, they think they're mistrustful, they're anxious, they're unmotivated, and they're inflexible. And various points of data reveal that Eastern and Western Germans still don't feel like they belong to one nation. Eastern Germans feel like second-class citizens when compared to West Germans. West Germans feel like, well, we had to pay for all of this uh, reunification to get your infrastructure up to, up to a standard of living that we find acceptable. So this, this, this constant um, uh, tension has led to many deep divides in the nation over how they should manage things now as a unified nation and, and as well as grow and build for the future. So even though the Berlin Wall was torn down almost 30 years ago, its, its introduction into Germany's society and identity was traumatic, and they're still dealing with the effects of it today. The, the ugly concrete wall is down, but as they say, they still have a wall in their heads, a wall that is uglier in many respects, a wall that's going to require more than jackhammers to remove. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he makes reference to a different wall, a very real wall, one that divided not one city, not a wall that divided a country, but a wall that divided all of humanity, the wall that divided Jew and Gentile under the old covenant. Starting with Abraham, God set his special favor upon Israel in a, in a way that he drew close to these people. And, and he drew these people close to himself in order that through this people, this tribe, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That's the promise he makes to Abraham. Israel was to be a priestly nation. Israel was to be a missionary nation. We read the Comedy of Errors, that's the book of Jonah, where Jonah just makes one you know, failure after another. And even at the end, after the whole city of Nineveh has, has repented and reformed and there's revival and people are turning to God, uh, Jonah's left sulking and angry about the whole thing. Um, we, we think of Jonah as this failed missionary and evangelist when the truth is he was the most successful evangelist in all of Israel. There should have been many, 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 many more Jonas. Jonas, Jonas shouldn't have been this, this one-off uh, character in the Old Testament. There should have been more Jonas going to the nations, but sadly that just wasn't the case. And you see Israel's attitude toward the nations in Jonah. God literally has to, has to yank him up and drag him over to Nineveh to get him to preach there. 
And so over the centuries, this setting apart of Israel, that that God had intended to be a delegation of responsibility upon these people uh, to to minister to the nations, that, that setting apart became perverted. And the separation between Jew and Gentile in Israel's mind became more about exclusion than it did about ministry and service to the nations. And so by the time of Jesus, the Jews had nothing but contempt for the Gentile world. Jews believed that Gentiles were just fuel for the fires of hell. That's why God created them, just, just as, as uh, you know, a scrap material to burn in the fires of hell. Uh, uh, Jewish midwives were forbidden to help a Gentile woman deliver a baby because that would simply bring another Gentile into the world. And Why would you want that to happen? If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, his family would hold a funeral for him. He was dead to them. As far as they were concerned, in every way, he, they wrote him off completely. And as a symbol of this attitude, there was a literal wall in the temple that Herod the Great built, which separated the inner courts from the rest of the temple complex, from the rest of the temple campus. The temple was constructed on an elevated platform, and, and around it was the court of the priests, and around that was the court of Israel, and outside of that was the court of women. And these three courts were all on the same elevation of the temple. But beyond this outer court, there were five steps down, a wall, 14 more steps down, and another wall, outside of which was was the court of the Gentiles. That was as close as a Gentile could come to the temple. Gentiles could look at the temple. They could come kind of up, you know, sort of near it, but they couldn't enter the courts. They weren't allowed to approach any further than that outer wall. And there were inscriptions around that outer wall written in Latin and in Greek that said, no foreigner may enter within the barrier and the enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. You know, that's a lot of words. We would just say, you know, no trespassing or keep out. They were, they were elaborated this. They wanted to be sure that if you're caught entering this court, you will have yourself to blame for your death. And there's not going to be a trial. We're just going to kill you. We're just going to execute you. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul had a personal experience with how seriously they took these warnings and these barriers. Back in Acts 29, you might remember, Paul was nearly lynched by a mob in Jerusalem who thought that he had taken a Gentile with him into the temple. And this was a man who, interestingly enough, this man was an Ephesian named Trophimus uh, that Paul had taken around with him on his missionary journeys. They thought that Paul had taken a, a Gentile into the inner courts of the temple, it was a false accusation, but this mob was, was riled up and ready to execute Paul just for just the idea that a Gentile had approached the courts was enough to get them uh, bloodthirsty and ready to kill Paul. Remember, though, that Jesus said when Jesus judged the temple by going in and disrupting the affairs of the money changers, remember what Jesus said. Jesus says, this is to be a house of prayer for all nations. But you've turned it into a den of revolutionaries. You've turned it into a den of, of thieves. The word uh, is translated thieves in most of our Bibles, but it's revolutionaries. It's, it's, um, it's rebels. That's what you've turned this into. You've turned the temple into this nationalistic symbol. The, the purpose of God's favor on Israel was that Israel would be a conduit 
of God's mercies to all the nations, that, that they would bring all the nations into covenant with God so that all nations could worship at his altar. Isaiah 56, listen to this. This is God saying, speaking, do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh speak saying, Yahweh has utterly separated me from his people. God says, even to him, I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. They shall not be cut off. Those who join themselves to Yahweh to serve him, to love the name of Yahweh, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That is the heart of God expressed toward the Gentile nations. I want them inside my walls. I want them inside my courts. I want them bringing sacrifices to my altar. This house is a house of prayer for all nations. Isaiah 56 should have been inscribed on the walls around the temple, but not. That's not what was written. What was written was keep out. What was written was go away or we'll shoot. What was written was no trespassing. They had erected this wall of hostility, this dividing wall of hostility. Now, in this letter written to a mostly Gentile church in Ephesus who knew this guy Trophimus who had gone down to Jerusalem with Paul. They certainly known the trouble that Paul and their friend had gotten into. Uh, now Paul writes to them about how God has brought Jew and Gentile together in one body. He's brought them together into one people in Jesus. He's taken the two parts of, of mankind and he's made one new man out of them in Jesus. There's no longer any distinction. There's no longer any division. At the start of chapter two, we read this a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember, he talked about the alienation of man from God, how, how we have distanced ourselves from God by our debts and by our corruption, by our sin and by the fact that every time we sin, we rack up debt and we have no way to pay off this debt. So God has paid off our debts by the riches of Christ and God has pursued us in spite of our corruption. He's pursued us in his love and he's cleansed us of our corruption. So the barriers between God and man have been eradicated in Jesus. And now we find, as he continues in chapter two here, in Jesus, the barrier between man and man has also been removed. So, so it's critical that if Jesus is taking away these barriers, that we don't keep a wall in our heads, that, that, that we keep up walls that have been torn down and that we don't erect new walls. So let me pick up again, because I got tongue-tied when I was reading this morning. And I, that happens every once in a while. I just can't get a word out sideways. So I want to try to read this again. I'll try to read it clearly this time. Listen again, just a couple of verses, and we'll walk through this together. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that... At that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, Paul gives here, he starts off with this short litany of the dire situation of the Gentile peoples before Jesus. 
They were separated from Christ. What could be worse? We've spent the whole book of Ephesians talking about all the blessings that are found in Christ. What it means to be in Christ, to reign with him. But being at a remove, these Gentiles had no part in Messiah or the promises of Messiah or the expectation or hope of Messiah. Israel uh, was, uh, was, was privy to those, but the Gentiles weren't. They were alienated from Israel and they were strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, now even at her worst, even at her most rebellious, Israel was still a nation under God. They were still a theocracy under Yahweh. The people of God uh, were under his care. They were the, the, they were the people that God had pledged himself to. God reigned over them and God protected them. Gentiles were not under his direct rule. They had no hope, and they were, in fact, without God in the world. They, they were hopeless because they had no eschatology. They had no future. And they were literally, Paul uses the word atheos. They were without God, atheos. They were, they were atheists. Now, they thought they had gods. They multiplied gods. But in fact, Paul says, no, you really had no gods. You were without God because you were idolaters. You didn't know the God of creation, so you were atheos. You were without God entirely. But now, I always love the buts in Ephesians. Paul, Paul introduces this dire situation and he flips it right on his head and he says, but now in Jesus, you who are afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And this has been the plan all along. To the Jew who knew the scriptures, this shouldn't have been such a scandalous message, though, though it makes them rip their hair out. They, they don't understand this, this message of the gospel. But uh, if you knew the scriptures, you knew that all along that God intended to bring the Gentile nations near. For example, Psalm 87. Psalm 87 rejoices in the glory of Zion that goes out to the nations. And, and, and the glory of Zion goes out to Egypt. And it goes out to Babylon and Philistia and Tyre and Ethiopia. And the inhabitants of the nations in Psalm 87 say, Zion belongs to us. And then, and then it says, of Zion it will be said... Yahweh will record when he registers the peoples, this one was born there. In other words, it doesn't matter if you were born in Philistia or Egypt or, or Tyre or Ethiopia, he's going to issue a new birth certificate and your hometown is going to be Zion. Your, your hometown is Jerusalem, the holy city of God. He's going to adopt you into his people so that you're no longer an Ethiopian. You're no longer an Egyptian. You're you're a child of Abraham. That's Psalm 87. And, and, and of course, you know the scriptures. The Old Testament just shot through with these promises to the nations. This gathering of the Gentiles ought to, be, ought to have been expected because this is how God always works. He creates a people, he divides them, and he puts them back together in a more glorious way. This is how God created mankind, right? He created Adam, and then he ripped Adam in two and made Eve out of his side. And then he reunited man and woman, Adam and Eve, reunited them in marriage, a, a relationship of oneness, a more glorious union. So there was this creation, there was this dramatic division, and then they were reunited in a more glorious way. Uh, after the flood, God gave mankind a new father of humanity, Noah. And under Noah, uh, uh, he, he, was, he was the father of the human race. But then God divided humanity at Babel in Genesis 11. But in the very next chapter in Genesis 12, God promises to reunite humanity under Abraham. Now see, this is happening over and over and over. It happened in the kingdom of Israel. So, in, in Solomon's uh, son's day, the kingdom was divided, right? 
Everything was brought together under Solomon. All the nations flood into Solomon's kingdom to hear his wisdom. But after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel is divided. And then the prophet Ezekiel comes along and he takes two sticks and he ties them together. And he says, God will bring back together Israel and Judah and make them one again. So, so this is the pattern. Unity, division, more glorious union, more glorious uh, 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 reunion. The, this, is how, this is how God works. Another way you could talk about it is creation, death, and resurrection. Just as Jesus himself in his body was taken apart on the cross and put back together in a more glorified resurrection body. In Jesus, all these promised and foretold and symbolized reunions are fulfilled. Jesus is the promised son of Abraham in whom all the families of the earth are brought together. And so this, this is the fulfillment of the promise that God has created mankind. He made a separation, Israel uh, and, and Gentile, uh, Jew and Gentile, Israel and the nations. But now he's fulfilled his promise to put them all back together in Jesus. Let's pick up with verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And then he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Jesus broke down the middle wall of separation. That's what, that's what Paul says. Well, what wall? What wall has Jesus broken down? Well, certainly the wall that's in the temple court is coming down, right? That, that wall is irrelevant now. And in just a few years from the time Paul writes this, it will be reduced to rubble by the judgment of God. Until then, another wall has been brought down, the temple veil that was a barrier between heaven and earth. That has been torn into. That separation is no longer in place. And now the project has begun to bring earth and heaven into unity, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. The wall between us and God has been torn down as now we have access into the heavenlies. Paul calls us saints. What are, what are saints? Saints have sanctuary access. And as this happens... These walls that divide us are coming down. The wall that divides man to man is eliminated as well. But, but how does Jesus do this? Paul says he knocks down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the hostility, the enmity. That is, Paul says, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Now, what exactly did Jesus abolish in his flesh through his crucifixion and death? What is brought to an end? What does Paul say? What is the answer to that question? What is brought to an end? Paul says, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Now, this requires a little bit of, of, of brain power, a little bandwidth to, to dedicate to this, to walk through this today. And, and I'm, I'm going to take just a few minutes to, to do this and... Um, and, and I pray that we can track through it together. And I'm sure you'll have questions, and that's fine. I'll answer your questions um, anytime. But, but I, I want to try to hit both angles and both sides of it. So, so what, what, is, what is brought to an end? The law of commandments contained in ordinances. Some writers and theologians, and this is what makes it sticky, is because I know we've all heard this, and we've all read it. I think even the Westminster Confession makes these designations uh, of the, that there was a moral law 
there was a civil law and there was a ceremonial law. And that, that what some writers and theologians want to say is that what Jesus brought to an end in his death was simply the ceremonial law. The laws that had to do with the sacrifices, the liturgy of Israel, the laws of cleanness, which had built into them these degrees of holiness, these Jew and Gentile distinctions. In fact, that's a pretty popular view. It's easy to find that view, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard that, and that you can easily divide the law of God into the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. That we could go through Exodus, and we could make a chart, and we could say, yeah, that's civil, that's ceremonial, that's moral, and it's, and it's easy to get out, get out a pen and make these separations. Or, or maybe that even the civil law goes away, and the ceremonial law goes away, and all that remains is the moral law. Um, and, and that's a, a, a pretty popular view as well. I have a couple of difficulties, though, with making these distinctions. First, my first difficulty is that the law is a seamless garment. It's all one piece. It all fits together. Under the Old Covenant, the law was a, a complete system. Let's just assume that you can always identify what is moral, what is civil, what is ceremonial. What, my uh, friend, Rich Lusk, he uses this um, illustration all the time. He says, if a man was, uh, was a covenant breaker, say like Achan was, and he violated the moral law, which Achan did, you shall not steal. That's what, that's what Achan did. He violated the moral law. He came under the purview of the civil law. The penalty was capital punishment, and he was executed by stoning. Well, what's left after stoning but a pile of stones, also known as a memorial or a ceremonial altar, reminding everyone of God's holiness. It's all connected. It's, it's very difficult to, to clearly and consistently separate the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. That's my first difficulty. My second difficulty is that the law, even, even the Ten Commandments, were written in such a way that was specific to Israel. Not necessarily all Gentiles. So for example, the, the fifth commandment to honor God, I'm sorry, the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother specifically blesses those who are in the land that God was giving to Israel. So, so honor father and mother so that it will be well with you in the land that God is giving to you. So, so there's a promise of the land connected to the commandment to honor father and mother. Now, must children honor father and mother? Must Gentile children honor father and mother? Uh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. As, as everybody agree with that, must, must you children honor your father and mother, even though you're not uh, Jews? Yes, absolutely. All the time, uh, 100%. Uh, but this is an application of the law that God gave directly to Israel in the context of the Old Covenant. The fourth commandment regarding keeping the Sabbath was not just a commandment about keeping the Saturday holy day, but all the Sabbaths, all the feast days, all the special days, all the seasons of worship. These were all Sabbaths, which were all required uh, of, of, of Israel and which many, many required sacrifices, which required the temple. So in some respects, you can't, you can't keep the Sabbath completely as it was under the old covenant now that there's no temple and now that there's no animal sacrifices. Uh, so now, now we can abstract the fourth commandment and we can say, is there, is there something there that pleases God? Is there something there that God wants us to do and to keep, to cease from our labors and to rest in God's work, to worship and fellowship? Absolutely. And of course, not just the Ten Commandments, but many other ordinances are written in a way that are specific to Israel. And so the law 
itself, as it stood under the old covenant, was a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. The distinction is built in. Now, so, so that's why it's difficult for me to think, well, we can take part of it out and say this, this lasts, but this part has all gone away. What Paul writes here is an echo of what he writes in Colossians. Hear what, hear what Paul writes in Colossians 2. Where he says essentially the same thing, but he puts it a little differently. Paul in, in Colossians writes this, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken out of the way having nailed it to the cross. And then, he, and then he goes on to say, you Gentiles no longer live under the old covenant types and shadows, the dietary laws, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the circumcision. So, so what was nailed to the cross in Colossians is the same thing that, that Paul says here is being abolished. And what is that? What is being abolished? What is nailed to the cross? It is the law. The law is nailed to the cross. The whole law. Not, not just one piece of it, not just, not just not parts of it, but the whole law. Well, how was the law nailed to the cross? Were stone tablets nailed to the cross? Were, were scrolls of Deuteronomy and Exodus nailed to the cross? No, of course not. Jesus was nailed to the cross. Jesus, who was born under the law, who takes the law into himself and who becomes the law incarnate, is nailed to the cross. Remember Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. The word there, destroys, he uses the word, I didn't come to undermine it. I came to absolutely be completely obedient to it in every single way and to fulfill it in myself. Jesus becomes the incarnate old covenant. He is the word of God. Jesus impersonates the law. He obeys it perfectly. He fulfills it impeccably. And when Jesus dies... The whole law dies, the seamless garment, the whole system, the Ten Commandments, the way it was written, all of it dies in Christ. And now when Jesus is resurrected, is he somebody else? Is he somebody different than he was before? No, he's, he's still the law. He's still the embodiment of the law. He's the same second person of the Trinity with the same standards, with the same definition of righteousness and lawlessness. No, this then new covenant law, what Paul calls the, the law of Christ, the law of the spirit, has the same standard and the same character as the old covenant law. But it's died in Jesus and it's been resurrected with Jesus. So when it died as an old covenant, as a way of relating to God, when it died, we were released from it. We were released from circumcision and the new moons and the Sabbaths and the, and the dietary laws. We were released from all that. And with the resurrection of Jesus, we are remarried to Jesus. His standards are the same. They haven't changed. So Jesus says, study the Old Testament law and you'll find that it teaches about me. Everything in the law teaches us about Jesus. All of it is relevant to us. You can't say then, well, this passed away, but this continues just as it is. no. Everything has been transformed in Jesus. Everything remains in Jesus, but everything has been transformed and changed in Jesus. The whole system has died 
And the whole system was resurrected in Jesus. And now we apply New Testament wisdom, new creation wisdom now on this side of the resurrection to determine what God requires. Another way of saying this is that the law was abolished as the covenant by which we relate to God. The, the law is done with, with its distinction between Jew and Gentile, the dietary laws, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the circumcision requirement. It is abolished as the covenant through which we relate to God. It's done. But it is not abolished as the revelation of the true God. It still reveals who he is. It still reveals what he desires. It still reveals what pleases him. And so we can still sing Psalm 119. We can still say, I love thy law. Well, I do. I really do love thy law. We can still sing the hymn, the law of God is good and wise, because it is. We can still meditate on his law day and night, and we must. And if you want to order a society, where do you go to put together a society? Are you going to make up your own laws, or are you going to pay attention to how God ordered his people? But then you apply wisdom, and you try to think, well, now on this side of the resurrection, how do we extrapolate these laws to our context? by God's Holy Spirit, by, by His direction, how do we do this? And, and we make all kinds of applications. So we, we see things in the law like, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. That, that keeps coming up. It comes up at least three times, so it must be pretty important. What does that mean? Don't boil a kid in his mother's milk. Well, we think, well, what is that? What is that? Is that a prohibition against cruelty? Is that taking something precious meant for the life of the baby goat and using it to, to, to to destroy the baby goat? Is that, is that what that is? And, and so what does that mean? How, taking something meant for life and using it for death. So how do we not do that? And, and, and how do we apply that? God's law says if you dig a pit in your backyard and your, your neighbor's animal falls into it, you're liable. Well, we take that and we say, well, that's, that tells us what God says about what we can and what we can't do with our own property. That tells us about what God believes and what God thinks about liability and our liability in our own uh, r responsibilities. Uh, these laws order society, just like the laws regarding, re regarding sacrifices order our worship. We find out through God's law what pleases God, what makes him happy. But we also make all kinds of adjustments in Jesus. So no more blood sacrifices. Now that we have Jesus, we are living sacrifices. We don't bring bulls and goats. There are no dietary laws. The creation has been cleansed through the sacrifice of Jesus. And there's no more division between Jew and Gentile. No degrees of holiness. No separation from God. Everyone is just as near as everyone else because the dividing wall has been broken down in Jesus. So, so Paul underscores this and he states this dividing wall is the old covenant. The, the dividing law was the law. The law has been brought down in Jesus. He is put to death the enmity. And he adds that little note from uh, Isaiah, that Christ preached peace to you who are far off and to those of you who were near. See, some of you were far off and some of you were near, but nobody was all the way in before Jesus. Nobody got complete access. So now all of you have been brought all the way in by Jesus because all the walls have been torn down. And now all believers have sanctuary access. And now because he's torn down the walls, you are part of his house. And that's, that's where Paul leaves it in verse 19. We'll just finish this short section here. Verse 19, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building 
being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. This new temple that that is being built, it doesn't have a dividing law and is laid on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets of the new covenant. Throughout the old covenant, each new sanctuary is built on the spoils of a previous oppressive nation. How did we build the first tabernacle? Well, we got all this stuff out of Egypt and we, we took it, all those riches and all this gold, and we built a tabernacle. But that was torn apart in Samuel's day. So David goes around conquering the idolaters and he gathers the raw materials, the spoils out of which Solomon builds the temple. Well, that temple was destroyed as well a little bit later. But in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, they build another temple out of the riches of Persia. In the Old Testament, they build these houses that don't last. They're always being torn down. They're being ripped apart, and they they have to build a new one. Now, on Pentecost, the new covenant temple is built out of the living stones of the raw materials of, of the old covenant. Who do we spoil to build this new sanctuary? See, that's what we've always done, right? How do we build a sanctuary? Well, we got to spoil our enemies. we got to spoil those who oppressed us. That's how we build the new sanctuary. Well, the same thing goes for the new temple. This temple is being built out of the raw materials of the old covenant. The old covenant is spoiled and the best parts are taken and and used to build the church. We have all these references in the gospels to how Jerusalem has become like Egypt, how how, uh, the Jerusalem is a city that's an enemy to the gospel. Jerusalem is a city we need to sack and plunder. We need to bring out the treasures to build our new temple. And that's what's happening between 33 AD and 70 AD. The church is plundering the old covenant to bring everything out into the new covenant. On the rubble of the old covenant, a new house is built. So that means there's both continuity and discontinuity, right? It's built, it's built on, the, on the basis, on the, on the foundation, but it's a, new, it's a new thing. So Jesus comes in and he calls his disciples. He gathers the people. He collects the raw materials to build a new temple. Now we, you and I, are being built into one house and Jesus is the cornerstone. There are lots of foundation stones, but there's one cornerstone. What what does a cornerstone do? Well, it determines three things. A cornerstone determines the location of the building, it determines the direction of the building, and it determines the size of the building. So a cornerstone is the big, a big stone that the first one you lay at the very beginning of the project before you start laying any of the other foundation stones. You lay the foundation stone, you lay the cornerstone rather, and if I put it here, the building's going to be here. If I put it two miles over there, the building's going to be over there. If I put it in Albuquerque, the building's going to be in Albuquerque, right? So it determines the location, it, des- it determines the direction of the building. So if I, if I angle the foundation stone, the, the cornerstone this way, that means the building's going to go this way. If I angle it this way, that means the building's going to be over here, right? And, it, and these are going to be the three dimensions of how the building is going to go. And it also de- determines the size of the building. So, so a little building will get a little cornerstone. You don't need a big one. But a very big building needs a big cornerstone. So now Jesus is the cornerstone. 
And the apostles and the prophets are the foundation stones. And we're built on that foundation. And Jesus is the stone that determines the location of the temple. Everything is in Christ. We've seen that over and over and over in Ephesians, right? How many times we've seen that phrase, in Christ. He determines the angle and the direction and the size of the temple. And we're being built up together and becoming the new temple. So we, the church, are the new building of the Holy Spirit, the new dwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have replaced the temple. And you can recall all of the applications we made on, on Pentecost to that. The church is the, new, is the new temple. And so now, if anyone out of national Israel wants to come meet with God, where are they going to have to come? Where are you going to go? You have to come worship with this new temple, in this new temple, the church. So three very quick things I want to take from this, and I'm going to take only about a minute each on, on each of these things. First, if Jesus is the cornerstone, if he's the one that determines the location, the direction, the dimensions of this building, if he defines all of these, Jesus defines the character of the house. And we have to get a handle on this. The more and more we hear redefinitions of words like inclusivity, and tolerance, and where we get love redefined for us by, by condescending elites, right? We, we get these words, we, we get this very pedantic little lecture on what, what love means. Uh, that we, we hear that the church must evolve and the Christian faith must change to accommodate an ever-shifting sexual ethic, right? We've got a cornerstone, we've got a foundation, we've got a basis that doesn't change. And it never changes. And here, this, the winds are always blowing and new things are coming and going all the time. And some things are popular. And no, you can't say that anymore, but you could say it five years ago and now you can't. And all this is changing. We're being told you've got to change too. And you've got to change your ethic. And we say, no, we've got a cornerstone that gives us our directions. And this is the definition. And this is love according to Jesus. And this is what true inclusivity means, that you come, all peoples, all nations, you come, submit to Jesus, give your life to him, and you will have life. You will have all blessing. You will have all that you need. And we're not changing. No, thank you. I'm not changing my mind on that. And though we must, must rest in and continue to, to grasp the foundational uh, identity that Jesus has given us as our cornerstone and not be not be tempted to budge on that. Jesus is the cornerstone, not the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age is not the cornerstone. The shifting, morphing uh, a mess of our society is not the cornerstone. Jesus defines our life. Jesus defines the church, and that doesn't change. Secondly, in his sacrifice, this is the second thing, in his sacrifice, Jesus brings together the whole world of mankind, Jew and Gentile, and he makes one house out of all mankind, one temple, eradicating entirely the Jew-Gentile distinction. Now, all believers in Jesus are sons of Abraham. You are sons of Abraham, all of you, even the women, you're sons of Abraham. Now, all of us men are part of the bride of Christ, but all of you ladies are sons of Abraham. That's the way it works. We're all sons. We all belong to Abraham. There's no longer Jew nor Greek. So, so what's with Christians? I don't get this. What's with Christians waving the flags of, of national Israel, the secular state of Israel that doesn't recognize Jesus? They think the church is a joke. I mean, they think the church is good for tourism, but it's not good beyond that. What special designation is left for any kind of ethnic or national or religious Judaism now that Jesus has wiped out the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile? What's left? 
to maintain that there are degrees of holiness, that there's still a separation between Jew and Gentile, is to deny the gospel. Because this is what Jesus nailed to the cross. In Jesus, all believers are brought right in close, right next to the heart of the Father. And there's no longer any separation or division. And thirdly and finally, because Jesus brought down this wall, because he eradicated the barriers between us and God, he eradicated the barrier between heaven and earth, he eradicates the barriers between man and man, between Jew and Gentile, between brother and brother, Jesus breaks down the hostilities. That means we don't go around building walls inside the church. We don't go around building walls inside our heads. Jesus has broken down the wall of hostility, but you know it and I know it. Then in our sinful rebellion, we in the church go right behind Jesus, rebuilding walls that he has just knocked down. In the church herself, in the church, there is alienation, there is disunity, there is discord. And yet the church, like Israel, is the community that God has established to show the world what it's like to live without creating unnecessary barriers to friendship, to concord, to life together. Now, here's the good news. The good news is Jesus has broken down all the walls. They're all broken down. They're laid to waste. He's destroyed the hostility. He's destroyed the enmity. And if we're perpetuating any of this, it's just in our heads. It isn't real. These walls aren't real, and they're certainly not necessary. So people of God, pray that you might identify the barriers that you have erected by your sin and by your rebellion and by your arrogance and by your selfishness. Find those barriers you have erected And by the Holy Spirit, get out the jackhammer and get out the wrecking ball and eradicate the walls of hostility that Jesus, Jesus is already, Jesus is already taking care of them. Don't you, don't you come back and paste them back together and put them back up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Jesus, you have brought all things together in Jesus. You have brought us together with you. You have brought heaven together with earth. You have brought man together with man. You have given us new life a real unity that we can't ever hope to achieve on our own. And so, Father, make this more and more real in the earth. Fill up by your glory all of these promises to to make this true and and seen and and revealed to everyone. Father, uh, grip us by your Holy Spirit that we might live this way every day. In Jesus' name, amen.